Our scripture reading this evening is from the book of Romans. I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Romans chapter 3. We read the last portion of Romans 3 and then into chapter 4. Begin reading at Romans 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This truly is the word of the Lord. I direct your attention, especially to verse 5 of Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And along with this scripture, we also consider from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. Now in our Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 224. Page 224. And let's confess this responsively. As I ask the questions, you respond with the answers. Lord's Day 23 asks, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? 
only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 23 poses a challenge to you in the question that it asks, and the challenge is this, what good is it to you that you believe all this? Now, Lord's Day 23 in the Catechism stands at the point where the Catechism has gone through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed, and going through the articles of the Apostles' Creed, it, it spells out what these doctrines, these various teachings, these various confessional statements mean. And then it comes to the concluding question, all right, we've gone through the Apostles' Creed. What good is it? What's the benefit of all this? Simply head knowledge? Well, those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ would respond to the challenge, the question, what good is it, by saying, what good is it? Nothing. Nothing. You see, for them, to be a Christian means you have to give up so much. Christianity is so negative. It's always saying you can't do this, you can't do that. You Christians are killjoys. Christianity, they would say, is so negative. Well, what do you think, brothers and sisters? Well, this evening, our good Lord has good news for you. Those who believe will lose nothing. But by believing this in the heart, with the mind, but believing it in the heart, you are now righteous with God. You are right with him. And an heir, that means the one who is receiving an inheritance, you are an heir of eternal life. All of because of Jesus. Eternal life means having all of the riches of Jesus Christ really and truly forever. Righteous in Jesus Christ means being accounted, means being reckoned or judged as having the righteousness, holiness, and perfection of Christ himself. Lord's Day 23, therefore, deals with the scriptural teaching of justification. And I wanted to address that tonight because we are in the month of October in which many times churches turn their attention towards the main teachings, the cardinal doctrines, that emerged in the time of the Great Reformation. And so, from Romans 4, verse 5, along with the summary of Christi uh, scriptural teaching in Lord's Day 23, 
the theme we want to focus upon tonight is this. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Now, if Paul had said in Romans 4, verse 5, God justifies the godly, we would say, yeah, of course, godly people will be justified. But the astonishing thing that I hope gets your attention is what Paul says, that God justifies the ungodly. How can he do that? And so under this theme, I want us to see these three things. First of all, our sorry condition, our very sorry situation. Secondly, God's perfect provision. And then finally, how that is mine through faith, through faith alone. Now, the teaching that we're dealing with tonight is that of justification. The teaching focuses upon one aspect, a single aspect, of our salvation. Justification is not the only teaching of the Bible. It is not. It's one of many, but it is a fundamental one. And all of the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the others, recognized that the teaching on justification was like a hinge upon which all the other doctrines turned. If you get justification wrong, then all of the other doctrines have to shift to make way. And sometimes I suspect that we Protestants misunderstand the Roman church on this point. For the Roman church also believes in justification. It does. It believes in that. It also believes in the importance and the necessity of faith. And so then someone could say, well, then what was the Reformation all about? Aren't we just all on the same page, basically, when it comes to these very fundamental teachings? And the answer is, not at all. Not at all. Once you understand the Roman teaching on this matter and the biblical teaching on this matter, you will see it's quite different. We are not even on the same page, therefore, as to some of the basics here. Now, consider first, then, our sorry condition, first of all. And it is remarkable that even here, that we must remember that many people do not believe that mankind is really in such a sorry state of affairs. When I take students to a Jewish synagogue in our area on a Saturday for an educational visit, sometimes the rabbi will speak with us. Uh, but whether it's the rabbi or any other member of the synagogue, they will always say this to us at some point in the discussion. Man is basically good. Man is basically good. One time a student asked the leader of a synagogue this question, since the temple is destroyed and the sacrifices are gone, how are you right with God? And without losing a beat, he said, it's by our good works. It's by our good works. Mormon, I asked a Mormon missionary one time, do you believe that it is theoretically possible, in theory, that a person could lead a perfect life now? And he said, yes. And even among Christians, they will all admit that man is not perfect. Man is not, may not be that good, but he's not that bad either. There are lots of traces of goodness left within people. Man may have been severely injured in the fall, but too far to say that he's dead in the fall. Consider what the Apostle Paul is saying by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 1, he makes it clear that the Gentile world 
is deeply dead in sin. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and then that bad theology will lead to bad ethics. Men then worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Man may worship animals, birds, power or pleasure or money or prestige. That's what man worships. That's what he worships. And then bad theology leads to bad ethics. Evil beliefs lead to evil behavior. Unnatural lust, murder, and stealing, and a whole host of sins follow suit. Now Paul says that this pervasive sinfulness also belongs to the Jews. Romans 2, we Jews say, you shall not do this, and yet you do it. And then Paul comes to the great conclusion in Romans chapter 3. Quoting from Psalm 14, verse 3, to note that no one is righteous, no, not even one. And the Catechism in, in Answer 60 notes this, that we engage in having grievously sinned against God. What are grievous sins? Well, what comes to mind perhaps would be murder, hatred, adultery, lying, profanity, anger, bitterness. I have kept none of the commandments of God. You know, in our churches, we often hear them so often on a Sunday morning, we tune them out just as often. Does familiarity breed contempt? Now, when it comes to the commandments of God, not for the child of God, the child of God knows these commandments and wants to keep them because these are the commandments that reveal the holiness of God. We see the perfection and the holiness of God in them, and the child of God wants to keep them. Perhaps we tune them out, might not, I wouldn't say deliberately, but we tune them out because we have perhaps tamed them. We tame them. What do I mean? In some Christian traditions, there's a tendency towards pietism. Now, we all want good piety, but there's a tendency in some to a pietism, which is a kind of quietism. Jesus saves me. I focus on that. I rejoice in that. And that's my Christianity. I nurture that relationship with Jesus. But our Lord also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And therefore, the danger that the Reformed tradition has faced is that we become too chummy with the law. We tame it. We hear the Ten Commandments, we conclude, well, I don't have any idols in my home. I haven't committed any murder this past week. I haven't lied to anyone in this past week. I have tamed the commandments. Really? And read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, as God takes his word and he presses it down to what's going on actually in our heart. And so now really, to understand justification, we must take ourselves to the courtroom where God is the judge. And he is a judge who knows both our external actions and our internal motives, both what we have done and why we have done or said what we have done and said. Now, for, uh, from time to time, a sensational trial might get the attention of the press, and we follow the activities of the trial. 
congregation in a courtroom where a judge presides over the case. The judge in his or her seat is not interested, first of all, in the character of the person who is being charged. The judge in his or her seat is not interested, is this person nice or nasty? Is the, is the accused lazy or lovable? Is the accused kind or cruel? The personality of the accused is not of first interest. The courtroom has one and only one interest before it. Is the person on trial guilty or break, of breaking the law or not? What verdict shall I render in the case before me? Guilty or not guilty of breaking the law? Nothing else. And therefore, justification is dealing, as I said before, with only one aspect of our salvation. It's not dealing with sanctification, not dealing with regeneration, not dealing with glorification. The concern is focused on this. What is the verdict? Is the accused guilty of breaking the law of God or not? How do you relate to God's law and his holiness so that you are legally in the right? Now, this is no idle question, is it? In fact, the question asked by the catechism, how are you righteous with God, is no idle question. It's not, you know, what did you do last Friday evening? That might be an idle question, but that, the question asked to us tonight, how are you righteous with God, is not a superficial question at all. For we can claim God as our Father, our God and our Father, and we can and we do in Christ. But the single focus in justification is this. On the last day, I will be in the courtroom of heaven facing the judge of the living and the dead. And the question is, is Mark Vanderhart guilty or not guilty? of breaking the commandments of Almighty God? That's the question. What verdict will the court render? Now, judges and juries, but judges also, and especially, reach verdicts on the basis of evidence. Evidence that is honest and accurate and presented to court. Not prejudice. And it shouldn't be. Evidence. And in our sorry condition, we supply the court with all the damning evidence that it would need. My conscience keeps telling me, you are guilty. You did it. Even when no one else was looking, you did it. I cannot turn my conscience off as if it is a, a video or a DVD or anything like that. Just turn it off. It's what keeps me from sleeping at night. And what is more, I find this tendency within me, this, this inclination, this leaning towards breaking all of the commandments of God. Now, my flavor of evil might not be your flavor of evil. The devil has a whole menu of evil that each of us can participate in. Bitterness, lust, aversion, gossiping being judgmental, pride, and on and on. We all have our personal battles with sin. 
And the evidence is all there for God, the judge, to see. Our condition is not just sorry, it is pathetic. The struggle is real, and the struggle is lifelong. In the words of the Catechism, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, and of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, still being inclined. Maybe one would process, oh, but Lord, your honor, I'm doing my best. I tell that to the judge. Even if doing your best would get you a B plus, that's not a bad grade, it's passing, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect. The wages of sin is death. The courtroom's verdict is then guilty. Now let me illustrate. Many of you have seen the Grand Canyon. Beautiful. But if you stand on one edge of one of the the cliffs or or one of those visitor uh, centers and you can see the distance to the other side and between is the Great Canyon, the Great Canyons. Now, what if one of you were to take a running start and you would leap and you would make it almost all the way across? You would miss the other side by just one yard. You'd miss the other side just by one yard. Now, I would have two things to say about that. Number one, that's an impressive jump. That's an impressive leap. My, 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 you you went across that canyon and you missed by only one yard. The second thing to say, you're dead. You missed the other side by one yard, you're dead. You fall to the bottom to your death. And it really can't get any worse than this, for we are also repeat offenders. You know, in Deuteronomy 21, it says that the son who is a glutton and a rebel who will not listen to any admonition must be taken out and executed. We are repeat offenders. And the distressing fact is that my conscience may be right, and that is frightening, because I have to live with my conscience. You know, we Christians are citizens of a new commonwealth. As the redeemed of the Lord, we we belong to Christ, we live in a new commonwealth. And yet, when a person comes from another country, they're happy to be here. But often their, their food taste, maybe the clothing, their voice accents, tells you that they come from another country. We still take with us the tastes of this world, the habits of this world, the thinking of this age, even as we are translated to a new commonwealth. And therefore, then the question arises, how can Paul write in Romans 4, verse 5, 5, that God justifies the ungodly? This is what justification is all about. I'm guilty legally, but the judge judges otherwise. How can that happen? Well, here we take a look at God's perfect provision. You see, God is greater than our hearts. 1 John 3, if ever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, for he knows all things. 
God takes all of his justice that is aimed for us really and truly, but he directs it to Christ because your sin and guilt is reckoned to be that price. This became the heartbeat of the Reformation. No, it's not the whole story of salvation, but it was the heart of the Reformation movement, the teaching that broke through so many uh, burdened hearts and became the source of amazing joy and gladness. Christ, we then learn, is a breath of fresh air. And that is summed up in the word in the center of answer 60, that one word, nevertheless, I am guilty, I have broken every one of God's commandments, I am tilting, leaning, inclined towards all evil. Nevertheless, out of sheer grace, God reckons to me, he imputes to me the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ. What a wonderful word. I'm guilty. Nevertheless, God the judge will judge otherwise. And so God the judge sees me, an ungodly and wicked man, and he says, he says what? Not guilty. I find the accused not guilty. At this point in the courtroom, chaos breaks out as people stand there astonished and they accuse the judge, God, this is legal fiction. Can the judge of all the earth do wrong? Should he not do right? You know that the evidence convicts this man, this woman. And therefore to say not guilty is fiction. It's not true. Will the heavenly courtroom of God hand out the wrong verdict in regard to sinners who are repeat offenders? And the answer is not at all, congregation. Not at all. There is no legal fiction here. And we learn once again that incredible story of what happened in the trial. My guilt, your guilt, the guilt of all God's elect are placed on Christ, but then the righteousness of Christ is placed on us. So when God looks at you, he reckons you to be right in Christ, dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is not a matter of feelings. We may struggle with our feelings at this point. But the gospel announces that Christ is the righteous one for you, freely, out of sheer grace. You see, in the Old Testament, it was so important that the animals brought for sacrifice be animals with no blemishes. They had to be perfect, flawless. They, had, they could not know sin. And then the, the, the sinner who brought that animal would put his hands on them saying, this animal represents me. And in putting his filthy, sinful hands on the animal, the animal is now corrupted. Now the animal must die in the place as a substitute for the sinner. This is the theology, if you will, of the book of Leviticus. The sacrifice is my representation before God. And it reminds us of what Paul will say later on so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin, Christ the Lamb of God, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness 
of God. That's beautiful. Out of sheer grace. Christ's active obedience through his whole life is also therefore an important part of our justification. Christ perfectly kept God's law. Wherever he was in whatever situation, he was never a sinner, perfectly obedient, the Lamb of God who knew no sin, that he might become sin for you and for me, that we might be granted his righteousness. And therefore, the chaotic outcries against God, you are performing legal fiction, those cries have no merit. Don't blame God of a legal fiction. The head of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, grants a real perfection with respect to the law to all those who belong to him. This is not fiction. This is not a lie. Let God be just and the justifier in all of his doings and let every man be a liar. This gift is a real gift. And the crediting of God's righteousness is real, it is final, and it is absolutely amazing. All because of Christ. That's why we say Christ is so vital. Vital. You know, the word vital and vitamins have that word vita, vita in it. If you remember your high school Latin, that means life. Life. He is life-giving. Away then with the idea that God takes righteousness and then fuses it into our souls, and then we produce good works, and therefore our good works justify us. Away with that. What is that? Am I supposed to be saved by faith? And my works, justified by the holiness of Christ, and my holiness, away with that. Away with the idea that God it justifies us initially, and then we stay in his favor by our good works. I've read that in Reformed writers. In by grace, stay in through good works. I wonder how many you need to perform to stay in. And how good do they have to be? No, there's a much better way in the biblical gospel. What good does it do you to believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ. I am right with God, and I and you, by grace through faith, are heirs, recipients of life everlasting. Right now, right now, we know this. Not on the basis of what we're feeling tonight as we sit here but on the basis of faith in the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ. Finally then, this is by faith alone. You know, we speak a lot about faith in the Christian religion. Lord's Day 7 says faith is not only a sure knowledge that what God says in his word is true, but it's a deeply rooted conviction that God's, the righteousness of Christ's salvation is not just for others, but it's mine also. And therefore, faith is not, you know, it's not the 1% that we bring to the table after Christ has done 99%. No, it's resting on Christ alone. Again, let me illustrate. If I were to be a person who worked out a lot and I built up very strong biceps and triceps, muscles, if I were in a quicksand pit, I would be going down to my death. And it doesn't matter how strong my muscles are. I could be a, you know, a 99-pound weakling, or I could be the most muscular person available. 
if I'm in that pit, I'm going down, arms and all. What I need is someone who is stronger than I, who is well-situated, who reaches out his arm and takes hold of me, and I hold on to him, and he pulls me out. Faith is holding on to Christ as God's strength reaches us and draws us to himself. My hand will not rescue me. My faith by itself doesn't rescue me. My faith is an empty hand, and I look to Christ, and I says, he's got everything I need. I'm merely a beggar, but he provides food. My hands may be strong or weak in themselves, but if I'm going to be executed, what does that matter? He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will pluck me out of the miry clay. He will take me from the quicksand pit. He will give me life. Righteousness, perfection, the total innocence of Christ is the message in justification. Christ is the solid ground. Faith is merely an instrument, an important instrument, but merely an instrument that holds on to Christ as he first takes hold of us. Never let him go. This is why Christians, no matter how seasoned they are in the faith, need to hold on to the gospel and need to hear that gospel again and again. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe that. You must believe that too. Oh, but pastor, I feel so guilty. Perhaps so. But listen, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Father, but Pastor, I, I still struggle. God knows that. But with regard to your standing with respect to the law, you are not guilty. For Christ's righteousness is yours. What good is all this? What's the benefit, what's the payoff in believing the teachings of the Christian faith? Much in every way, that right now I am right with God and an heir to everlasting life. I know of no better verdict that could come out of God's courtroom. Because of Christ, God is able to justify the ungodly. This is amazingly good news. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the amazing message of the gospel, that our righteousness is secured, it's founded in Christ our Lord. And we pray, Father, that you will always feed us with that good news, to give us the strength to lay aside our struggles with our own doubts and insecurities. Father, we do have those struggles. The devil keeps whispering in our hearts, either you are really, really good, puffing up our pride, or sometimes he whispers, you are never good. Never good. How could God ever save you, miserable sinner? But Father, we believe in Christ. We believe in his finished work. We're so thankful that part of his work in our hearts is to open our eyes, see the beauty of Jesus, who is everything to us, that we might uh, turn our eyes on him, trust in him in all things. Grant us a greater faith in Christ in Christ alone, for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Let's respond by singing together five, 457, 457, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. All